Welcome to the weekly podcast of Wildwood Baptist Church in Ackworth, Georgia, just outside of Atlanta. We're so glad that you're joining us today. If you'd like to know more about Wildwood Baptist Church, you can find us on the web at wildwoodbaptist.org, or you can email us at info at wildwoodbaptist.org. Thanks for joining us. Let's open the Word of God together. One of the great things about doing a sermon series verse by verse and chapter by chapter is we discover how thorough God really is in his word and keeping kind of a common theme and showing us many different angles while still saying the exact same thing. You, you may know this, you may not. Galatians is a, a letter that Paul wrote to at least a, a couple, probably a few churches in Galatia. These churches are churches that he basically started on his missionary journeys. He uh, led people to faith in Christ, and from that, these churches were formed. And this particular letter has 2,230 words in it. It's broken up into six different chapters. And yet, if we were going to see one common theme in every chapter, certainly at the very least within the first four chapters, the fourth we'll be studying together this morning, we will see this theme, and this is your first bullet point as well. Jesus is enough. Now, in order for that to sink in, we really have to ask the question, um, what exactly is enough? Or, better yet, enough for what? What is Jesus enough for? Well, an obvious answer would be salvation. Jesus is enough for forgiveness. Jesus is enough for reconciliation with our Creator and a renewed relationship that leads to great reward in growing to know Him better and to be part of His grand plan for salvation. He is enough for new life. He is uh, enough for basically everything. There is nothing more than faith in Jesus that is necessary in order for you to be saved and to become a member of his family. Jesus, therefore, is enough to bless us. He is enough to equip us. He is enough to strengthen us. Jesus is enough enough to provide for us. In fact, Paul says this in Philippians 4.19. He says, And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. We have everything that we need once we place our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Now, all of us, or at least many of us, I would argue most of us knew that before we came in here today. The question that we have to answer is, do we believe it? Do we live it? Because you and I chase a lot of rabbits in the time that God's given us called life, right? We, we pursue things that we argue we have to pursue in order to do things that I just told you Jesus will do for us. We, we have to provide for our families. We have to pay our bills. We, we have to uh, have certain niceties in order to live a, a certain standard or a certain quality of life. And I'm not arguing any of those things as 
uh, ways of living. I'm just suggesting to you, if Jesus provides everything that we need, if Jesus is enough, then should we be pursuing those things or should we be pursuing Christ and knowing him better and growing to understand how he desires to work in us and through us for his grace and for his glory. So it's an amazing picture of how God really does transform those who initially put their faith in him and then grows them to become passionate followers of Jesus Christ. And the problem that Paul is having with these churches in Galatia is now these Judaizers, they are Jewish leaders who've come back into these churches and they're saying, listen, believe in Jesus if you must. But the bottom line is God told us we have to obey the law. We have to follow the law. So listen, don't be fooled by what Paul is saying. You must know the law. You must walk the law. You must live the law. You must be the law. That's the most important thing. And Paul is saying, no, no, Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. The law is not bad. The the law is no longer necessary to follow. Why? Because now we follow Christ. Now God's given us the power of his spirit to be changed on the inside with a desire and a love to now follow Christ rather than following a list of rules and regulations that believers or or Jewish people once followed. And Paul is suggesting to them, listen, why why are you going back? Why in your freedom to follow Christ have you returned to slavery? And this is your second bullet point. Being required to earn your salvation is like being a slave to your good works. You know, you're moving back into have-tos rather than, God, I desire to want you and want to do the things that you would lead me to do. So I want you to turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 4. We're going to pick up there. And these first seven verses kind of separate the difference between being a son of God and being a slave to God with no kinship involved. That's the parallel uh, analogy that Paul's going to make here. And Paul's comparing it to the typical family setting back then as well, which I'll explain in a moment. So I'll read the first seven verses aloud as you follow along. Here's what Paul says. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. See, Paul starts out by saying when when we're children, actually children of that day, we have a little bit of this now, but not as much as they had back then. Children were often raised by servants in homes. 
And, and so basically, they were kind of in the same scenario. They were being told what they had to do. They weren't in a decision-making uh, position as both children and of slaves. So in many ways, they, they were comparable. But there comes a time in a child's life where there is a rite of passage. So in the Jewish tradition, when uh, a male son became 12 years of age, he would be presented in the temple as a um, front runner to the bar mitzvah that was going to happen when they were 13. And when a male son, a Jewish son, turned 13, he was then moved into a uh, decision-making position, decision-making mode. Isn't that amazing? 12 years old, 13 years old, and they're, they're being asked to make decisions for the future of their life. In comparison today, we look at adulthood as being somewhere around 18 years of age. 18 years of age, you can marry, you can vote, you can uh, sign a contract legally. If you didn't know that, that's true. You can actually uh, agree to things contractually. You can become part of the military at 18. So Paul says in the same way, we're, we need to understand that when this rite of passage occurred that is Christ, we were free from the rules and regulations that we were being told we had to follow now to simply seek and follow Christ. By his power, in, through his spirit, and obviously through the guidance of his word as well. And so he, he begins by saying to them that this adulthood that we have moved into based upon our faith in Christ, is an opportunity for us to experience new life. And that new life occurs not through our first birth, but through our new birth or our rebirth. Remember what Jesus told Nicodemus when Nicodemus says, what does it take for me to inherit the kingdom of God? Jesus answers in John 3, 3. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So here's the correlation. When we're born again, we are adopted into the family of God by grace through faith in Christ. And we become children or sons of God, as we see written in verse 7, who now call their heavenly father, father, and who now become his heir. And, and no matter how wealthy your father may have been when you were growing up, you, you really couldn't take advantage of that. No infant son can enjoy that kind of wealth because there are no rights or privileges to being that child at, at that young age. In biblical times, children of wealthy families were often, again, raised by their servants, and there was really no difference. Both of them had to answer to mom and dad. Both had to answer to the masters of the household. Well, in Jesus, we're now governed by his love and by his grace to explore all the possibilities of how God desires to use each one of us uniquely and individually without giving us uh, a running list of things that everyone is supposed to do or follow according to the plan and purpose that God has for his people. The, the Ten Commandments are not bad. The Ten Commandments are very, very good. We were just never, ever going to be able to fulfill them all. And they were an exercise of frustration for anyone who believed in order to be saved, you had to. Because no one was going to be successful in doing that. So Paul says that was just an opportunity to recognize our sin 
so that we would recognize our depravity, our need for salvation, and believe in the one who was sent to die for our sins and now be free to follow and, and to seek him and his will for our lives. So God the Father sends God the Son to die on the cross for our sins. God the Son then sends God the Holy Spirit to order and to arrange our lives to lead us in the way that he would have us to go. And a son no longer has the immature or disconnected nature of a servant. It takes on the same nature as his father. That's the ultimate goal that God has. That's why Jesus tells us in John 15, verses 15 through 16. He says, No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends for all that I have heard from my father. I've made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. That word abide means remain so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. See, this is our rite of passage into an empowered and free and fruitful life. Children love parents who love them, don't they? I mean, kids love parents who show love to them. But obviously, most servants aren't very fond of their masters. This is the real question that I want us to ask ourselves today. Are we a friend or a foe with Jesus? Right? Here's one way to tell. The servant obeys out of fear and duty, but the son obeys out of love and devotion. See the difference? God's spirit works within the heart of a believer to increase and expand the potential for loving God. Do you know why? Because his love for you is far more vast than any love that you've ever had for him. But our love can grow. It, it can become more. It can increase. The better you and I get to know God, the more deeply we fall in love with him. And the more deeply you and I fall in love with God, the more like him we desire to be. And, and honestly, God uses someone who loves him far better than someone that feels like they have to obey him. That's the ultimate goal that God has through salvation. In fact, it's important for us to understand that Christians that think that submitting to the law would save them the, the fact of the matter was the law had no power to change them. Love does. God's love changes our hearts. So Paul asks them, why would you want to return to legalism and slavery when you can be a son of God? A son is rich. A son has a hope and a future, but a slave is not. This is what he continues with in verses 8 through 11. Paul says, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid that I may have labored over you in vain. Paul asks a very important question that makes, before he makes a very important point. He asks this question, why go backwards? 
Now understand that the people who are saved in Galatia, they are Gentiles. And Gentiles back in that day, they were well known for worshiping many false gods. It was called paganism. It, it was a polytheistic belief. And so they had all kinds of gods and, and all kinds of ways of worshiping all of those gods. And, and uh, their basic premise was, we've got a lot of work to do to keep God happy or all of our gods happy. Understanding that they were all false gods. Paul's pointing that out here. None of them were real. But they believed that in order to get what they needed, they had to please God. So they would do it in very, very strange ways. Some of them would harm themselves. We probably have all seen movies, at least in the old days, where uh, we, there would be tribes that would be visited and this ritual of, of throwing someone in the volcano to please God was being practiced. Well, that was fairly real back in biblical days when it came to paganism and, and Gentile worship. And the fear was this, that if I'm not on God's good side, he's not only going to be displeased with me, he's not going to provide for me. He's not going to give me the things that I want or the things that I need. And see, these Galatian believers, these Gentile believers, they were falling back into that trap because the Jewish leaders were saying, you have to follow the law. This is the rule. These are the rules that God has given us. You have to become like us. You have to become Jewish so that you can honor the God of the Jews. And they were being drawn back into the bondage of slavery and the law. They were dropping out of the grad school of grace and returning to the grade school of the practicing of the law. So Paul asks this question in verse 9. He says, how can you turn back again to these weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? Why would you go back to believing that you have to do things to be right in God's favor and if things aren't going well for you God must be unhappy with me and therefore I've got to do the things that that the commandments tell me that I must do in order to be right with God now stop for a second with me and answer this question haven't we all felt that way from time to time haven't we all wondered when things weren't going the way that we wanted them to or thought that they should we must not be in good standing with God God must be punishing us. God must be displeased with us. I need to get right with God in order for God to bless me or to give me the things that I need. Paul is saying, no, 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 no. Your sins are as white as snow when you place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ because of what Christ did for you on the cross. He took your sin upon himself. They don't have to be paid for anymore. Christ paid for them. Paid in full. You are fully atoned. Does God want us to live in sin? Absolutely not. In fact, I dare say, if you're in love with Jesus Christ, you're in love with the things that Jesus loves to do and the way that Jesus loves to lead us. And so we're not living in the sinful way that we used to live with our battle against law-abiding and, and flesh-giving into uh, flesh. We, we have this desire now to be one with God and in koinonia with our Savior. So when you think about that, you, you think about the necessity that our society tells us 
uh, we have to follow in order to be right with God. Folks, I, I know this sounds a little bit like an attack, but Catholicism is well known for these things, right? The idea behind Catholicism was when you sin, you have to go to a priest and pray for forgiveness. And then he's going to tell you some prayers that you have to pray. And then you have to pray a certain number of prayers a certain number of days or times until you get all those prayers in. When you die, you go to purgatory, and in order to get out of purgatory, someone's got to pray you through purgatory, right? You, you have to, to live this life that tells you that you've really not fully been accepted by God yet. You are to pray to the saints. You are to pray to Mother Mary. By the way, neither of which were ever divine. Those saints and Mary were just like you and I, but they were chosen by God to do the things that God used them for during that time. See, none of those things are found in Scripture. They're made up by men. And remember this, Christ died for your sins to be forgiven. You do not have to earn God's favor any longer. He then moves to the Jews and the statement that he makes about observing certain days and certain months and certain seasons and certain years in verse 10. And that was the connection to the special occasions that the Jewish people would uh, remember. They'd, they'd do certain things and then they'd go back to their regular way of living. So here's the contrast between those things and what's happening in believers in Christ's lives today. We are all made in God's image. We know that. But here's the difference. Believers in Christ become children of God. And children of God, bullet point number four, children of God are being transformed into the likeness of their Savior on a daily day basis. Day by day as we seek to know the Lord and to grow in knowing the Lord and to know his love and to be transformed into his image, there's an opportunity for you to grow to become more like him. It is not about fulfilling traditions or rituals. These words had to be challenging the believers who Paul had introduced and led to Christ. He wants them to know that the love that he has for them is still there. He's not so sure about their love for him. And he points out that there was a time when he first came to them that they would have done anything for him. And he's wondering what's happened. Let me read on verses 12 through 18. This is what Paul tells them. He says, brothers and sisters, I entreat you, I urge you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you. He's talking about the Judaizers here. They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose and not only when I am present with you. So Paul's asking, whose team are you on? Who, who, whose theology or doctrine are you supporting? And in Paul's first missionary journey, which you can read about in Acts chapters 13 and 14, Paul's initial plan was not to go to Galatia. 
and certain conditions and certain things led to him going there but one of the things that happens is is he has some kind of malady we don't know exactly what's wrong now by the way during that particular time he does get stoned maybe that was part of the problem I would guess there'd be some disfigurement happening when you get stoned and uh, so anyway for whatever is going on he was a little apprehensive of going to Galatia and preaching to them because he doesn't know how well he's going to be received he's either disformed or his his ability to communicate is being hindered by his malady but he but he says listen I went there and you listened and you received it and you loved it and you loved me and as much as I was hurting you you were willing to give me your eyes if you could have because of your love for me based upon the gospel that you heard Um, that isn't true of these false leaders and what Paul is explaining to them, one of the, the marks of a, a false teacher is that they will desire to attract others to follow them for reasons other than the sharing of truth, right? Maybe they use some impressive vocabulary. Maybe they've got this great charisma that draws you to them. And Paul apparently used neither. In fact, he tells the people in Corinth, in 1 Corinthians 1.17, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. He adds in the very next chapter, And I, when I came to you, brothers and sisters, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men and women, but in the power of God. Here's what Paul is pointing out. The power of God is not found in the giftedness of any speaker. It's found in the gospel itself. That's where the power of God is found. And, and since he had shared the truth with them and they had received it warmly, uh, warmly and gratefully and they had believed it wholly, he's asking them, what has changed your minds? Why, why would you regress? Now, of course, Paul knows exactly what had happened. False teachers were teaching false rhetoric, and they were leading them into false practices. And Paul had told them the truth, but these Judaizers, they were spreading lies. They were trying to alienate Paul's teaching to sway the people's allegiance from Paul towards themselves. And the goal of every true servant of God is to lead people to follow Jesus Christ, not ever to promote themselves or their ministry. Good leaders will always point others to Christ. So we now move into what I believe is one of the best illustrations used in the entire Bible of the difference between doing things in the flesh or of ourselves and doing them in the spirit by God's power. Listen to what he says in verses 21 through 27. Paul says, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through a promise. 
Now, this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above, he's talking about the heavenly Jerusalem here, the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor, for the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. The events that Paul is using allegorically come from Genesis chapter 16 through 21. And it's the story that many of us know about Abraham and Sarah. When Abraham is 75 years old, God promises that his descendants, he would be the father of many nations, and that his descendants would perpetuate his faith. The problem was he and Sarah had no children. And so Abraham and Sarah hope for this, they believe in this, but as years go by with no descendants, their impatience grows. And so Sarah suggests to Abraham that he marry her handmaiden, Hagar, and attempt to have a child through her for this blessing to occur. Um, that was legal back then, but that was not the will of God for their lives. So Abraham acquiesces, he does that, and lo and behold, when he's 85, Hagar has a child by Abraham whose name is Ishmael. And Sarah and Abraham at that point believe this is, this is the descendant. This is the lineage that God is going to use to bless. Little do they know that when Abraham turns 99, God speaks to Abraham again. And he says, now is the time. And you'll bear a son and you are to call him Isaac. The name Isaac means laughter. And laughter is what Abraham does. But he doesn't laugh uh, at his own... Uh, or laugh at the situation. He's not laughing with God. Let me tell you why Abraham is laughing. I believe he's laughing because of his foolishness. He recognizes that he overstepped God's will for his life, and he didn't wait on God, and he didn't trust that God was going to provide, and so now he's got a, a problem, and lo and behold, when Abraham is 100 years old, Sarah bears a child whose name is Isaac. Now, there is a stark contrast between these two children. Obviously, Isaac is born as a blessing and as God's promise, but Ishmael is born of the flesh, right? Ishmael represents the old covenant of the law. Isaac represents the new. Isaac represented the promise that was coming to all who trust to God. Ishmael represents those who choose not to. Hagar was a slave. Sarah was free. Ishmael was conceived by the will of the flesh. Isaac was conceived by the promise of God earthly Jerusalem, they lived in bondage to the law. Heavenly Jerusalem will live in the freedom of the Lord. You see the difference? This is the comparison that Paul is making with those who cho choose to revert back to trusting the law and obedience to the law for their salvation. Ishmael can actually be compared to our physical birth that makes us sinners, while Isaac represents our spiritual rebirth that makes us saints as children of God. We're born of the flesh, but we're reborn of the spirit by God's power. 
Ishmael ends up causing problems, just as our old sinful nature causes problems for ourselves in our new life. Ishmael wasn't a problem until Isaac came along. So our old sinful nature knows no conflict until we are met by our new life that can be lived only by God's Spirit. Paul explains it like this in verses 28 through 31. Paul says, Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. We, as believers and passionate followers of Jesus Christ, are like Isaac. We are children of the promise by grace. The covenant of the promise of grace is like Sarah, our spiritual bearer of what lies ahead for all who believe and trust in Christ. The law is a symbol of our old nature, Hagar and Ishmael, which can only lead us back into slavery and bondage to the old ways and not the new. It was customary for Jewish mothers back then to wean their children off uh, somewhere in the age of, of around three years of age. And they would actually do a celebration for that. So when Sarah had weaned Isaac off, she had a celebration, and it was at that celebration that Ishmael is found making fun of his brother Isaac, and Sarah sees it. And so she goes to her husband Abraham, and she says, they got to go. Ishmael and Hagar have to go. They're going to be a hindrance to what God wants to do with Isaac. Well, Abraham wanted no part of that. Ishmael was his son. So he argues for a moment, and then God steps in. And he says, no, Sarah's right. Sarah's right. Ishmael and Hagar must go. The old cannot covenant with what is new. And so Abraham has to send them away. It is much like who we are becoming in Christ compared to who we used to be. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is passed away. Behold, the new has come. But here's the reality that you and I face in our day-to-day -day lives, both as believers and passionate followers of Jesus Christ. According to John 3.6, it tells us that which is born of the flesh is flesh. We are born of the flesh. But we are also born of the Spirit. And he says, and that which is born of the Spirit is Spirit. Here's the point. We cannot totally eliminate our old nature. We're going to do battle with it until Christ comes back or until we go to be with him. However, God can change our hearts. That's what he wants to do. Our old nature was given to us at birth, and it'll linger. But the new nature is given by the Spirit of God. And it's dealing with the old nature. And we could be reborn by it. And, and they can't both win. You either follow the Spirit or you follow the flesh. We must die to who we used to be in order to live for Christ and who he's calling us to be by the power of his Spirit as he leads us and the power of his Word as we study it and apply it to our lives. Now notice these words again in verse 30. Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. What is he saying? 
Those who believe salvation comes through obedience to the law will never receive salvation. Those who believe that salvation comes through faith in Jesus Christ will truly be saved. You cannot have both. You cannot put them together. They do not belong together. One was something that was practiced in the old. This is now what is to be practiced in the new. The Son represents the promise of God that comes with faith in the Son of God who died for the sins of the world to be forgiven. You can't add anything to your simple but confident faith in Christ in order for you to gain and to um, embrace your salvation. Not works, not legalism, or anything else. Folks, Jesus is enough. So Paul ends by reminding them of this truth in verse 31. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. Freedom in Christ introduces us to a whole new life through a whole new relationship and a new inheritance as a child of God. And if you're saved from the burden and the bondage of your sins, you are are free by your faith in the only one who could set you free. It's by Jesus Christ. I've heard people question this. In fact, I've been asked this myself. Pastor Rick, if you tell people that they no longer have to live under the rules and regulations of the law, how in the world are you going to keep people from sinning? Well, Paul's going to address that in the next two chapters. Lord willing, we'll be able to study chapter 5 together next week. But so not to leave you hanging, can I share with you the words that Jesus offers in response to that question? Here's what he says in John 14, verses 15 through 16. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that's an advocate or a counselor, to be with you forever. Here's the answer. Ultimately, we follow Jesus because we love him. And the challenge that we face is do we truly believe that he loves us? I'm going to invite Pastor Steve and members of the praise team to join me on stage. But I do want to challenge you with this because I really do think that there's freedom found in understanding the difference between the two. Let me ask you this question. Do you truly love God? In the deepest recesses of your being, will we find love for God being the foundation of your life? and of the truth that, that you adhere to and that you follow. If, if God knows us by our hearts and not by our words or even by our actions, doesn't know us by the outside, he knows us by what's inside. If God is investigating who you truly are and what you believe, does he see your love for him there? I think that will be a response to whether or not you believe God loves you. We more easily love those who love us than we do those who don't, don't we? And maybe our response to God is somewhat hindered, maybe even withheld by wondering, does God really love me? Does God know what I'm going through? Does God know what I'm facing? Does God know what I've been through? Does God know what I have faced? Does Does God know those things and still claim to love me? And the answer to those questions, ladies and gentlemen, is yes. 
and he proved it by sending his son to die for you on a cross so that you would have freedom to believe in him, freedom to trust him, freedom to believe that he loves you. So if the question is not, does God love me? Maybe the question is, is he a good God? Is he a good father? Can I trust him? It is there in that answer that you'll offer him. That's where I believe you'll find salvation and grace and freedom. Do you honestly believe that he's a good father? Because if you do, we're going to give you an opportunity to communicate that to him today. I'm going to ask you to stand. I'm going to ask our deacons to come down and make themselves available. Some of you have never trusted in his son as your savior. And you may want to do that today. These deacons would be honored to pray with you. Some of you have never gone public with your faith. That's what we do in baptism. I was dead in my sins. I've been raised to walk in newness of Christ. If you've not been baptized by immersion, we'd be honored to tell you more about that. But listen to me. Some of you sitting here today have claimed the blood of Jesus in your life and you still question God's goodness. And you have an opportunity today to decide, is he a good God? Is he a good father? Because if he is, then you have an opportunity today to choose to fall deeply in love with him. Let's pray. Father, would you open our hearts and our minds to your truth? May we discover in the incredible insight that you've offered us through your word today, who God really is. He truly loves us. His son truly died for us. We are truly set free of our sins. And today we are in a relationship that builds every moment of the day based upon the confidence that we have in who you are. And you are good. May we accept it believe it and abide in it today move in our hearts to respond in a way that honors you best and we ask that in jesus name amen you respond as the holy spirit leads you as we sing this last song together you've been listening to the teaching ministry of wildwood baptist church we hope that today's message was an encouragement to you for more information you can find us at wildwoodbaptist.org as well as on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Just search for Wildwood Ackworth on the web and on social media. Thank you for joining us, and we look forward to hearing from you.